Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series, sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. It is my honor and pleasure today to welcome John Kirby, the Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the National Security Council, who is one of the nation's most experienced and thoughtful communicators, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral who served twice as the Pentagon spokesman, the Chief of Naval Information, uh, the State Department spokesman before moving uh, to the White House earlier this year from the Pentagon. Uh, this conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's uh, greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. John, welcome aboard. It's always a pleasure having you back on the program. Great to be back with you, Vago. Happy to do this. Thanks so very much. Before we get started, our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems also sponsors our broader strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting was sponsored by Safran and Leonardo DRS. Uh, John, very excited to have you on uh, at a very important time. Um, we're trying to steer clear of sort of the tactical uh, as well as the political to have a broader conversation on how uh, the strategic communications environment uh, is changed, has changed, and, and continues to change, right? Information is the most powerful tool. It can be weaponized. It is being weaponized. Uh, and we're at the confluence, and I should say, you know, you too are living at the confluence of a perfect storm. The media business has changed, driven by technology. Communications norms have changed about what leaders, uh, you know, used to say or, you know, now do say uh, more often than not. Uh, and indeed, as you've long maintained, right, you're no longer talking in a nuanced way to multiple audiences, but now you have to talk to the audience more more broadly. Um, and, and with an ever-shrinking attention span by the public that lives in media silos, right? Um, how has the game changed and continues to change that both enable how you communicate and impede your ability to do so? I think one of the biggest changes I've seen in uh, just the last couple of years is the speed the speed of the environment. Now it's always been fast out there. Um, uh, certainly a lot faster than it was when I started doing this back in 1990, but in just the last couple of years, the acceleration has been quite alarming. And, th and what I mean by that is the, the, the rapidity with which uh, information uh, can get disseminated literally uh, at a global scale. Um, and that information doesn't necessarily always have to be accurate. In fact, this information travels it, it, it much faster it generally than, than actual useful, accurate information. And so we have got to, in the communications business, I mean, we've got to be able to react literally at the speed of Twitter. Now, that doesn't mean we rush to be wrong. I don't, I, I, we obviously have an obligation to be right, but I think we all have to be in the, in the comms business. We got to be better at reacting and not afraid to say that that's part of what we do. I have heard, you know, some senior leaders say, well, you know, in the public affairs world or spokespeople world, you know, all they do is react to headlines and we need them to get their heads up and think strategically and long term. And I don't disagree with that. But trust me, you want your spokespeople to be quick. Uh, you want them to be agile. You want them to be able to react and respond uh, as fast as possible uh, with accurate information to try to beat back uh, some of that speed of the certainly the speed of the disinformation. The other thing I'd say is that um, what hasn't changed out there is the value of story. 
and I know this will sound kind of uh, Pollyannish, but it's the truth. Um, the one who tells the better story is the one that makes the difference in influencing and uh, uh, informing and educating. The stories are what sell. Stories are what make a narrative believable or a policy uh, enforceable uh, or a resource decision executable. Uh, and we don't do uh, as good a job, I think, uh, across the government and in, in, in telling uh, the stories uh, of what we're doing and how it's affecting actual people. Um, so that's, you know, regardless of the, the glut of information out there and the, um, right. you know, the, the preponderance of all kinds of different media outlets, I think we still have to come back to the, just the, the foundation of good storytelling. So to that point, right, we are, um, it, you know, as you said, right, I mean, and, and as often said, right, a lie makes it twice around the world before the truth gets its uh, shoes on. And your point has always been to be, you know, credibility is about truthfulness. At the end of the day, you have to tell the truth, even if it's a hard truth to tell, you've, you've got to sort of face it and and rip the Band-Aid off and, and, and tell it. There used to be a bandwidth that David Brinkley used to talk about, sort of the acceptable bandwidth of lying, right? But generally driven by shame, you know, a lawmaker would be caught, um, you know, they'd tell uh, what was obviously a white lie to the reporter. The reporter knew he was being lied to. Well, the reporter would reflect that in his story while clobbering the guy and saying, hey, look, this is what had really happened, uh, right? Including, including the fig leaf in it. Whereas now we've sort of transgressed that to the point where leaders, whether domestic or foreign, will just lie, uh, for lack of a better word, in, in whole cloth. You know, and that then gets propagated by social, social media, uh, and, and then it gets, gets siloed, and then there's just an enormous amount of news. How, John, do you, do you communicate in this post-fact world where fabrication and misinformation are increasingly commonplace? I mean, how do you fight that with a counter story? Because some of their stories, while completely crazy and completely false, or, you know, have truthiness to them? Yeah, that's a great question. I used to say, I love that quote too, uh, which I think is attributable to Twain, that uh, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still tying on its shoes. And, and nowadays it seems like you can't even find your shoes in the closet before that lie is, is halfway around the world because again, of, of the speed with which the information environment moves. I used to say, you can't beat a lie to the punch, but you can overwhelm it. And I still believe that to some degree, and I, with a caveat that I'll come back to later, but you can overwhelm the lie with context and content. You can overwhelm it with good imagery and the imagery matters a lot. And I'm not just talking about photographs and video. I'm talking about the word pictures. I'm talking about the image that you place in somebody's mind. You can do that. You can also overwhelm the lie with repetition. And this is something that a lot of leaders, I don't think uh, fully grasp. The, the greatest myth of communicating today actually, I'd say any day, uh, is that you've actually done it. We think if we send a tweet or we you know, correct the record at the podium or we do an interview or give a speech that we've communicated, we, don't, we, don't, we just think, okay, one and done, it's out there. Now everybody can point back to what I said. You've got to constantly repeat the message. And here's the trick. You've got to be willing to change the way you're delivering the message based on how the audience is receiving it. We just assumed if we say something that it's interpreted exactly on the other end that as, as how we wanted it to. And you, you've got to be willing to change up uh, how you're communicating the same idea, uh, given the reaction you get from an audience over time. So repetition matters. But now here's the caveat. I do think you can beat a lie to the punch if you know that punch is coming. And this is something we've learned, I think, quite effectively in the last eight months to, uh, with the war in Ukraine. 
by declassifying intelligence that we're getting out there and we're doing that in a timely fashion. If you know the other side's gonna lie about something, if you know they're gonna try to set up a false flag, if you know they're gonna make an excuse or, or, or create a pretext out there with, uh, with information of their own to justify some adverse action, and you can get that declassified with the intelligence community, get it out there. And that's what we've been doing. Uh, we've done it, I think, very effectively with, with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I've been doing it myself here at the, at the NSC uh, with uh, other issues like North Korea and, and with China and the tensions over Taiwan. Um, if you can make that, that information uh, available, you can actually beat the other side to the, to the lie. But again, the trick is you got to know that the lies come in. You've got to have that good, strong source of intelligence information to know what's out there. It was an extraordinary scene, you being at the podium, right, uh, and disclosing some of this information. And obviously it was to, you know, not just, um, you know, try to deter, but also warn our allies and partners to get ready, including warn the Ukrainians about what was coming. Um, and um, what are the broader lessons, not just of the war, uh, John, but the importance of communications in national security? I mean, I, I think I think it's it's integral. It, 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 it's central. Um, uh, public communications is no longer an annex. It's no longer a tangential concern. It's no longer something that can be put on the sidelines. Uh, you know, a, a, a break glass kind of moment. Well, we got to communicate this. Public communications is is seen, and I and I have to say, it's encouraging for me to see this here at the NSC, and I saw it at the Pentagon um, in in the last uh, eighteen months, but. It's central to the decision-making process. Your communicators have got to be in the room when the decisions are being discussed, let alone being made, um, because they'll have context. They'll have, they'll have a sense of how this decision is going to play in the information environment. More importantly, in many cases, sometimes the narrative, the story, is in fact the defining uh, factor between success or, or failure in an operation or a policy. Uh, there's a terrific book. I, I, I talk about this book all the time, it, it, and it's called War in 140 Characters by David Patrick Rakos, uh, which is just a terrific read about three modern conflicts, the Gaza War in 2014, the Ukraine invasion of 2014, which is very timely, of course, now, uh, and of course, the fight against uh, ISIS in 2015 and 2016. And it talks about how the narrative actually was more important in determining success or failure in these military operations than kinetics, than bombs or bullets. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a very good read, but it, it, it illustrates perfectly what, uh, what I'm trying to talk about. And I think that, that a lot of leaders, particularly in the military, I think they're, be, they're, they're really beginning to embrace that idea. Let me um, ask you uh, about how you reach the people where they are, which is harder than ever in a fragmented uh, media environment, right? I mean, once upon a time, you used to read everything. You might not like the New York Times, you might not like their editorial bent, uh, but you'd read it and you'd quibble about it. Whereas now you can descend into your own ecosystem where, you know, folks are taking advantage of you uh, in, in, in a sense, and you're comfortable with it, uh, right? And, and a lot of people don't want to be challenged anymore in, in the news uh, that they're getting. How do you reach John? How do you get the truth and the message to these people who live in an alternate ecosystem. There's a great old country song that I love, uh, the title of which is, uh, there's too many pockets on my shirt. And, uh, and the, 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 the singer laments the fact that he's just, he's got too many choices. Um, and I think that the same thing happens to the, the American people. There are just 
way too many sources of information. I think you called it a glut, and I would agree with that. And, and sometimes when we're faced with too many choices, too many options, uh, we tend to close down. We tend to get intimidated. Uh, and so we go back to our what makes us feel most comfortable, what reinforces uh, our sense of, of values, our sense of, of reality, our sense of truth. Um, and so it, with all that stuff out there, it's just easier and simpler. And quite frankly, it makes you feel better about yourself uh, when you're when you're self-selecting and in, uh, in, into uh, into media consumption that comports with your worldview or makes you feel more assured about about your belief system. Um, and that's just natural. That's just human nature. What we need to focus on, I think, first of all, you know, we shouldn't criticize that or 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 mock it. It's it's a reality. Um, but but what I do think we should work on as a society is media literacy and and really helping people understand that information is just like food. You know, you have a healthy diet, but you know, you want to take care of your body. Well, you want to take care of your mind by having a healthy diet of information. And, and that requires work. It's not easy to, to eat healthy foods. You got to work at it because uh, it's actually a lot easier to just go to a fast food restaurant. Well, that's what's happening with people in the information environment. They're just going to fast food solutions. Um, what we got to focus on as a society is working on media literacy. And I'm not just talking about for young ones. I mean, my granddaughter is five years old and she's better at using uh, a smartphone than I am. Um, we do need to teach, teach children to, to critical thinking and uh, being able to discern uh, factual information from, from disinformation and, and where the good uh, uh, sources uh, are out there in the environment. But we also have to work on it as adults, particularly the older adults in our society. Back in the 2016 election, Vago, uh, almost two thirds of seniors in, in America on Facebook admitted to sharing fake news about the 2016 election. They knew it was fake, but they shared it anyway because it was compelling. It made people angry or anxious or what for whatever reason. But Facebook was a huge mover of information back then because people were more inclined to read and digest information if it, if it came from a friend. So we've got to work on, I think, media literacy across the board in our society. And that means teaching people how to go find this stuff. Yes, it takes energy, but you can set up feeds on your phone and on your computer to receive things. You just gotta make sure you're receiving from the right sources. Look at the headlines. If the headline makes you angry, makes you anxious, makes you fearful, eh, you might not be reading a legitimate headline from a legitimate outlet. Look at the editorial process. Do they have an ombudsman at that outlet? Do they, do they judge themselves? Is there a standards and practice format uh, and, and, and a strong editorial page? that provides context to the content in, in that outlet. Um, and, and then of course, you know, be willing to be, be willing to open yourself up to opposing views. Um, I, 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 I don't think it'll surprise you in my job. I, I actually read and watch and consume widely. I have to, um, but I think it makes me a better communicator to know what everything that's out there, even, even content that not only I disagree with, but that I find faulty or inaccurate. It's still important to know what's out there and to be able to engage that. But you're giving a solution that is years uh, in the future, right? Has got to percolate to school boards and, and what have you. Is, is there anything, right? I mean, the sort of sense of depression that's washing over people in a bipartisan sense is how hard this is going to be over uh, the coming years. And I want to get to the national security implications of this in a moment. But what are the things, I mean, is there anything that can be done in this 
I don't want to call it a valley of death, John, but right as we make this journey to where we need to be to the promised land, how do how do we bridge this intermediate future, which is not looking particularly good? I don't think there's a silver bullet, Pago. I don't think there's something that we can just um, execute, you know, today to to to, uh, to affect us. You know, the, this information environment that we're living in was a long time coming. Yes, it's certainly accelerated and and things are moving fast. But I mean, it, it took years for us to get to this point with the advent of social media and cell phone technology uh, and microelectronics, and of course the the the, uh, the now the choices in media outlets that people have, be they uh, legitimate or not. Um, and it's going to take us a while to get to, a, I think, a, to a better a, a place where, where people can discern right from wrong, good, good from bad and, uh, and inaccurate from accurate. Um, I, I wish, I, I wish I could tell you, there's just one thing we can do or, or a right. couple of things we can do right now. I just don't think that's, I don't think it's that easy. And quite frankly, I'd worry about us if that's the way we tried to approach this, uh, uh, just a, sort of a quick fix, because those things are, are usually not sustainable. Uh, we've 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 all got to be willing to take a step back and to make ourselves a little uncomfortable, get a little chalk on our intellectual cleats, if you will, you know, and 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 engage uh, engage outlets that uh, that maybe don't have the same worldview that we that we espouse, but we're willing to allow for the other view to come in. I mean, polarization is a real problem in the country. Certainly, it's a um, it's an increasing problem with some, not all, but some media outlets. Um, and I think it's not something that we can just easily fix. I want to get to the national security part of this, but it, it just reminded me, how do you navigate an increasingly fractured press, uh, right? Because uh, generally it was more reputable sources of information, of information, right? Or media outlets that were contacting the National Security Council uh, for comment, right? I mean, intended to be a pretty specialist uh, group, uh, whereas now you've, you've seen all matter, right? I mean, the barriers of entry dropped where I could create a podcast that has tens of thousands of daily listeners. Um, how do you deal with an increasingly fractured press and map out where they reside in the ecosystem and either the potential benefit of what they do or the potential peril of what they do? First of all, we got to be humble. Uh, I believe in humility in all forms of communication, and we have to be humble that they are out there and that they have influence. Now, not all of them have the same level of reach that others have. I, I understand that. Um, but look, there's, there's really never been a time in American history where you know, there weren't media outlets who uh, favored one side or the other. Um, uh, you know, some are more centrist, obviously, and, and, and some tend to, to, to go to the extreme on both sides. Um, that's, that's not a new phenomenon. What's new is just, is just the proliferation uh, today and the speed again with which they communicate. So I think um, you, you, you got to, as a communicator, you have to accept that that's the environment that you're in and embrace it. I don't mean you have to like it all the time. I don't mean you have to, you know, give the same amount of uh, weight and, uh, and attention uh, to, to uh, an outlet that's on the fringe versus an outlet that's more mainstream. Uh, I mean, obviously you, you want to, you want to spend the time, the most efficiently and effectively that you can with uh, with outlets that are going to to have the reach that you want, but you you do have to accept that they're out there and 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 work and work inside that environment, um, not in a again not in a mocking way, not in a, a disrespectful way, uh, but a way that that uh, that allows you to to reach as many audiences as possible. Um, and and again, regardless of 
of uh, which way you vote uh, and what your politics are and, and what outlets sort of line up with your, your particular worldview and politic, political view. Um, you, you do have to understand that there is, uh, that, that not everybody thinks like you, not everybody consumes information like you, not everybody believes what you believe. And, uh, and as a communicator, um, that means being able to reach out there and, and have that discussion. Let me ask you a civil military divide uh, question, something you and many of your bosses, most notably Admiral Mike Mullen, uh, would uh, discuss and think about often. One percent of the nation serves, 99 percent don't. Uh, Mullen's concern was both the one percent getting entitled and separating from society and the 99 percent just not understanding the organization and you know having its own erroneous perceptions uh, of what it is and what it does or, or simply not understanding. Uh, and for some in the military, you know, the, for, I mean, for some, I should say, you know, the, the military is more focused on wokeness than war fighting, something you and I uh, have discussed, uh, erroneous, but again, a perception. For others, it's a hotbed of extremism, uh, rather than regarding the military as a, as a genuine and true reflection of society, good and bad, uh, in, in terms of, of what it does. How, how do you bridge the internal and external communications divide on this and get Americans who don't you know what I mean? You, you can't get on military bases easily anymore. There are military bases or concentrated in different parts of the country. I grew up in New York City. We don't have military bases in New York City anymore, uh, except for our armories. Um, you know, how do you get Americans to give a crap ultimately and 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 to inform both internally and externally? I do think the American people care about the military. I, I do. I, I And that's evident just with the budget that the military continues to get every year, that's a great sign of the support that, the, that they have from, uh, from not just Congress, but from the American people that put our members of Congress in, in office. I think um, it, it, it is a perennial problem, you know, with the all volunteer force that as Admiral Mullen says, that, that, that while the American people appreciate and respect their military, they, they do not know the military. And that and that's something that we've got to continually work at. It it got really hard in the last couple of years with COVID, because our recruiters couldn't go face to face and and and, and talk to young uh, men and women about about joining, and we weren't able to um, like you know Blue Angels and Thunderbirds shows got canceled, and a lot of uh, community engagement that the that the services like to do uh, had to be forestalled, and uh, and we're just now really kind of coming out of all that, and you're starting to see that engagement ticked back up. In fact, the Pentagon just last week did the first in-person JCOC, Joint Civilian Orientation Course, uh, first time in, I think, two or three years um, uh, to great success. So we're starting to come out of that. I think we've got to look for ways to have conversations with the American people. And the more we can do that face-to-face, -face, the better. Um, that is that going to solve all the problems? No, it's not. Um, we got to continue to work with the enter entertainment industry on uh, uh, on the movies and TVs and you know the popular culture things are out there. The new Top Gun movie is, um, has had tremendous success and has certainly right. um, helped uh, increase awareness uh, again uh, for uh, for naval aviation. So I mean, there's you have to be creative about this, but you're not going to solve it with tweeting. You're not going to solve it with you know with just doing uh, press interviews or or more uh, you know or or more speeches. You've got to get out there and have a conversation. One of the things that I think sometimes the, the most important tool of communication is actually listening. When you sit and listen to somebody, 
you're actually sending them a message. Yes, you're being passive and listening to them, but you're sending a message to that person or persons that their time matters to you, their opinions matter to you, and you care. And I think we, we in the, the, those in the military, you know, we got to continue to find ways to listen to the American people rather than just talk at them and tell them, here's what we're doing. Here's how much money we're spending. Here's how important we are. You got to spend some time, again, being humble and listening. And of course, the only way to do that is to be out and about. So I'm a big favor of a return to community engagement. I think, uh, I think that that will help a lot. I uh, also um, would point out that uh, Top Gun Maverick uh, was uh, it's a terrific movie. And I've never left a movie theater where people who've never served wanted to find a recruiting booth. Uh, and then people who had served, uh, and even if they complained about their carrier deployments, were like, you know, sign me back up and send me out there. I can't wait to smell a, a steaming hot flight deck again. Um, let, me, let, me, and- let me pick up on that, though, Vago, because you, you, before I forget, you've raised a really good and that is, and I said it earlier today, earlier in our conversation, but it's worth coming back to. It's the power of story. You know, that, that's how we, we are a storytelling species. And we have been since we were painting on caves. Um, and everybody can say they have a favorite movie or movies or a favorite novel. Why? Because the story pulls you in. And we just got, we have to do a better job at telling the story of what our men and women are doing out there every day on the nation's, on the na- on the nation's behalf, because that's what, that's what convinces. That's what persuades. That's what excites people. It's not data and facts and, and, and uh, you know, policy statements. It really is about storytelling. I like to talk about the one of the best books that I've read in a long time. Uh, I think I may have talked to you about this is a book by Aaron O'Connell, a reserve Marine officer called Underdogs. And it's about the Marine Corps story. It's about the narrative of who they are and how they have advanced that narrative um, to great effect, not just in terms of getting, you know, budget share, but in terms of getting the support of the American people behind what is the Marine Corps, which is sort of, you know, they're, they're, the Marine Corps is kind of iconic, um, but the, because they know the power of story um, and, they, and they, do, they just do it better than anybody. And I think, you know, this movie, this, this Top Gun movie is a good example of, of, of just how effective that can be. I'm not joking when I say that I am actually looking at the spine of that book as I record <laughs> this interview. Uh, so uh, and it, it is a it is a terrific book. And, and again, right. I mean, Marines do a terrific job in inculcating that that image, not just within themselves as a source of their esprit de corps, uh, but also uh, ex- externally, obviously. Let me let me take you uh, to the question of speaking in, in plain English. OK, you became a hero to reporters and communicators alike uh, when you said the DOD needed to speak in plain English. This was during the uh, Obama administration when you were in the top Pentagon job. And did you see similar issues at uh, the State Department when you went there and then to the White House? And and what are the strategic consequences of organizations that are talking to uh, themselves or, you know, rather than talking to their audience? Yeah, I mean, I think... uh... Without picking on any one agency, it remains a challenge inside uh, the executive branch to to find plain words to to speak and to make clear um, what we're trying to say. Uh, it's just, uh, I mean, this this isn't something new, but it's just it's a function of, of bureaucracy that you know we tend to lard up our language with more adjectives and adverbs than we need, and we tend to uh, we, we tend to um, try to find big fancy words to say. Uh, what really could be said much shorter and simpler uh, to make it more understandable. It's, uh, it's ironic, but I have found it to be true that it's actually harder to speak and to communicate simply than it is 
to speak and communicate in a complicated uh, uh, vernacular. That that seems that's that's it's I don't want to. Well, I guess it is kind of lazy. I mean, it's it's easy to just lard right. up our language with a bunch of uh, jargon that nobody understands, but we can point to it and say, well, look, we don't, it's in there. It's in that sentence somewhere. And, and it's just, I, I think we get enamored of, of how many big words we can use to describe something that could be done a lot more simply. And I think we got to work at that. It comes down to editing, right? Editing is everything. You know this, I mean, you're a journalist, you, you throw it out a first draft and it usually sucks. There's another great book that I, I like to cite called Shitty First Drafts. Um, actually, it's, I'm sorry, it's not a book. It's an article. Shitty First Drafts, it's called. And, uh, and, you know, it's okay. Throw it down there on the page and then edit yourself. Not once, not twice, not three times, but as many times as it takes to boil something down to it so that it's simple and understandable. And that takes time. And, you know, not a lot of us have a lot of time these days. Our days are always over, overcharged and overscheduled. But, but I think the more we can do that, the, the better. Um, I, I, I've only been here at the NSC for five months. Um, so I can't claim any special knowledge, but I have been uh, very impressed watching President Biden as he tries to communicate and, and the effort that he puts in to simplifying what he's trying to say. And he have, I've seen him you know, push back on drafts of things that are sent to him because he wants it in simpler, more plain language. I mean, that the maximum number of people can understand. Um, I mean, think back to the Gettysburg Address, one of the most powerful, eloquent political speeches ever in American history, 271 words, 203 of which are one syllable, 203. And it took the President Lincoln two and a half to three minutes to, to, give, to give that speech, short, simple, um, and, and succinct. And I think that's what we just have to keep working at. But again, it, it, requires, it requires effort. Uh, the photograph of him is blurry because in the time it was taking for the photographer to get ready to take the picture that the, the speech was over, uh, uh, which which I think is is very powerful. Right. You don't have to write long and to invoke the name of the great Mark Twain uh, twice in one podcast. Right. He said, I, I apologize for sending this very long letter. I didn't have the time to write something shorter. Right. So exactly. uh, ult exactly. ultimately, um, you know, get your idea on the page, but then continue but to winnow it down. But aside from, aside from just the good English aspect of this, Vago, I mean, this does get to something. I've, I've talked about this a lot, that I believe we live in a post-audience world. I, I agree with you. It's a post-fact world as well, but it's a post-audience world. And, um, and what I mean by that is we don't have the luxury anymore of parceling out audiences and giving them different themes and messages and, and fancy narratives. Um, when, whatever you say today or whatever you communicate, it goes global in a nanosecond, whether it's a tweet or something I might say in a CNN interview or a speech like, like the one the president gave last night, it goes global right away in real time. And so if you can't boil your messages down to three simple ideas that can be easily digested by everybody, then you're going to have a problem making any kind of inroads in the, in the communication environment. I mean, so it's not just about, you know, being better writers and editors. It is, a, it is about being better communicators but because you, you just don't have the luxury anymore of saying, well, we're going to say this to members of Congress, and then we're going to say this to sailors and families, and then we're going to say this to the, you know, the, the local community outside of, uh, of Fort Drum. You, you, you've got to be able to communicate to all of them all at once. And then, unfortunately, right in that, on that same platform, having uh, people comment on it who might not be that expert, and, but feel empowered to be able to make some kind of comment, whereas if we went back 30 years ago, you know, we would do some man on the street or woman on the street 
But then we would really go to more experienced political analysts for commentary, whereas now everybody has a bullhorn and can shout simultaneously, that was stupid. People don't want access to information. They want access to conversation. They want to be part of the, that's the other aspect of this post-audience world. They're not willing to, to just sit back and lap up your talking points or your, or your narrative. They want to talk back with you. And they want to know that you, back to listening, will listen to them and hear them and engage with them, even if you don't agree. Now, does that mean you have to answer every tweet? No, of course not. But if you want to be authentic and viable in this communication environment, then you've got to be accessible and you have to be willing and you have to be humble to to take that stuff over the transom and deal with it and engage. You know, you uh, invoked uh, President uh, Biden. uh, And I want to get into uh, the role of the communicator in helping shape uh, and enact uh, strategy on their boss's uh, behalf. Um, you've got a reputation for always building good relationships with your bosses, thereby getting a seat at the table to then allow you to shape policies uh, and strategies, right? Look at folks and say like, okay, that's just, right? Just say that to yourself for a second. That doesn't sound very sensible, does it? Uh, to produce a, a better product at the end of the day. What, what advice would you give senior leaders and communicators alike on communicating and how to build an effective communicator-senior leader relationship? Uh, I think, number one, for senior leaders, whether they're CEOs or generals, um, they need to remember that they are the communicator-in-chief for their command, their organization, their company. They set the tone. They set the communication culture tone. Um, and everybody will follow suit. So they, they need to understand their responsibilities as the, as the, the again, the top communicator. And then they have to, for, for whatever their comfort level is, they've got to, they've got to are, you know, sort of lay out uh, what communication objectives matter to them and how personally engaged they want to be. Um, uh, and then that needs to be translated to, again, the rest of the organization. Uh, whether you want to be very forward-leaning and forward-facing or whether you feel based on the organization, you need, you need a, something a little bit more nuanced and maybe a little bit more passive. Um, and then once you've laid out that, the communication culture, uh, then you have to have a relationship with your chief communicator that comports with, with those goals and objectives. Um, and I think the, the, the best communicator is an informed communicator. I mean, in all the time that I worked for Admiral Mullen, and it turned out to be about 11 years. Um, uh, I, I honestly can count on one hand the number of times when a reporter would ask me, what does Admiral Mullen think about X or Y, that I actually had to go and ask Admiral Mullen, hey, sir, what do you think about X or Y? And the reason was because he had me close by. I was in virtually all the meetings. I was certainly on all his trips. And even when I couldn't be with him, um, we would communicate daily, whether it was over the phone or he'd call me down to the office. He constantly wanted to make sure that I knew what he was thinking and why he was thinking like that. He also wanted me to challenge his thinking. Um, and that was a great lesson for me. And it, it, I, I can't tell you how much better that made me at being his representative in the public environment uh, because I could, I could react faster. I could, I could communicate easier and more credibly. Because not only did I have the confidence that he had the confidence in me, but the reporters and other people that I were talking to knew that uh, that I was accurately speaking for him. You know, when it comes to that communication message, John, 
there's there's always a battle on you know who should be doing the communicating should it be the uniforms should it be the suits there's messaging in that there were some who criticized you when you were in the obama administration you were the spokesman you were wearing a uniform uh on the other hand there was no civilian who was doing that job right and ultimately the department still has to communicate then there's the challenge of well white houses are so focused on messaging discipline uh and they won't let us uh communicate what is the right approach for subordinate organizations, right? I mean, you want messaging discipline, but in this fast moving world, what does empowerment look like? What does it look like on the military side? More specifically, what does it look like on the civilian side as well, up and down an organization? You know, because there's a tendency of sometimes uh, leaders looking at subordinate elements and saying, okay, wait a minute, we know what we're doing. You guys don't know what you're doing. Be like the good shepherd and shut the flock up. How do you, how do you both empower but then have people do so in a manner that actually does not become counterproductive for, for uh, lack of a better word. It's about balance. Uh, I, I wish I could give you a, 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 a better answer than that, but it's the truth. It's about balance. I mean, uh, message alignment doesn't just happen. It has to be, it has to be worked at. It has to be uh, implemented and it has to be done in a thoughtful way. Um, and that's a big part of my job here at the NSC. I am the coordinator for strategic communications, and um, I take seriously my responsibility to make sure that we are aligned in our messaging across the interagency. Um, and that requires some top-down guidance. Here are, the, here are the major parameters or the major lines with which we are going to communicate on a given issue. Um, and some of it uh, is then being able and willing to delegate, to be able to allow uh, subordinate uh, agencies and subordinate commands once given the guidance to give them enough leash that they can communicate inside their lanes of authority. Um, and uh, some days you get it right, you know, and, and it, it works really seamlessly. And some days on some issues, uh, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, but that's, there's, there's no trick to it. It takes hard work and it, it takes a constant um, constant contact. I mean, uh, to use a sports analogy, I mean, it is a full contact sport. You've got to right. have those conversations and that dialogue uh, with subordinates uh, literally every day on, on whatever the issue is. So it's, a, it's again, it's a balance. And like all balances, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to maintain it. Uh, let me ask you one last question. It's a question we ask everybody on this uh, series, which is focused on strategy. Uh, what, from your standpoint, from a communication perspective or, or any other perspective, uh, John, are examples of good communications or, or good strategy worth emulating or bad strategy that should serve as a warning? Looking back at the last eight months, because that's obviously at the forefront of my mind, uh, I am I'm very proud of the way we as a team, a national security team, have communicated what we're doing to support Ukraine. And it came really from the top down. I mean, the, the president himself laid out three very clear priorities, uh, which have not changed. Number one, we're gonna support NATO and we're gonna meet our Article 5 commitments if we have to. Two, we're obviously gonna continue to support Ukraine in their efforts to defend themselves. And three, we're going to uh, work to avoid a direct conflict with Russia and, and avoid escalation. And you know something? In the last eight months, and it's hard to believe that it's been eight months of this war, those priorities haven't changed. And they have driven everything that we do in the communication environment, including the declassification of intelligence that we put into the, into the public bloodstream. 
including the way we engage with uh, subordinate agencies at the Pentagon, at the State Department, um, in the intelligence community. Um, we, it was good, clear, top-down guidance. There's a logic to what we're doing uh, in terms of policy execution and physical support to allies and to Ukraine. But there's also from that a logic to the communications uh, objectives that we're trying to achieve and the, and the messages that we're trying to deliver into the bloodstream. Um, and if there's a logic, if you can connect A to B so simply, and again, it all comes back to simplicity, uh, then you can communicate effectively. And I think we've done a very good job at that. And now, whether you call that a communication strategy or not, I guess I'd leave that to the critics to decide. But, but it, it, it is all stemmed from very clear, overarching strategic goals. Um, and it's just driven everything in the communication environment. So I, I think I would hold that up as a, as a good example. Thanks so very much uh, for joining us, John. I mean, we know how busy you are. We truly appreciate you uh, spending some time uh, with us. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I'm happy to do this and I uh, look forward to the next time.